Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today, we'll discuss Liverpool's incredible 9-0 win over Bournemouth this weekend. Is there a mental block when it comes to scoring 10? And what are the prospects for Scott Parker's side in the Premier League this season? We'll also be talking about Erling Haaland and Manchester City. What about their defence as he becomes the flat-track bully that might just fire them to the Premier League title. We'll be talking about pressure for Steven Gerrard at Aston Villa, at Richarlison's silky showboating, and we'll also pick our Player of the Month nominations. All that and more in the next hour or so on The Game. Hello again and welcome to the Game Podcast. I'm Hugh Wisencroft alongside Tom Roddy and Alison Rudd this week. Uh, loads to discuss. i got to say the Premier League's keeping its consistency in terms of entertainment. I'm not liking the fact that the commentators have picked up on it though and they keep remarking about how fantastic a league it is. Slightly, slightly belittling to fans of other divisions, I think. But we had a 9-0 this weekend, so I, I think we're allowed, you know, we're allowed, okay, to... Um, to, to eulogise about the Premier League a little bit, uh, Jurgen Klopp's Liverpool bouncing back from that lacklustre display at Old Trafford with a sensational win at home to Bournemouth. They become just a fourth team in the Premier League era to notch a record 9-0 victory. Um, for Bournemouth, I think it underlines a weak summer of transfers will come to them, though five players brought in, three of those on freeze, none that look like they'll make a huge impact in the English top flight. So much so that Jurgen Klopp had to give Scott Parker a little cuddle, okay? Because that was the difference in the quality between the two teams. Alison, you were there. What was the best thing about Liverpool's win? The best thing about Liverpool's win was that it wasn't dictated by how poor Bournemouth were. Liverpool went at Bournemouth as if it was the second leg of a European Cup tie and they were 3-0 down and they were playing Real Madrid or Barcelona or PSG. They went for it. They went for the jugular. The intensity, we had two goals in six minutes. And it, that sounds weird to say it, but they were, you felt they were coming. It was over, overwhelming the amount of pressure they put on Bournemouth. And so that sort of sense of, you know, rolling up your sleeves and putting the cobwebs away and, and sort of resetting after a poor start to the season was really palpable. And then what happened was that, it was. I don't think Bournemouth realised they were going to be subject to that, and they were completely. I mean, Scott Parker called it shell shocked, but that's how they looked. It's like one of those scenes from those war movies when you've got young men who don't know what's hit them. It. it they. They. They didn't know how to recover, and then so it was um, deserved in that sense. It was. It was. It was about the team that scored nine, not so much about the team that conceded the nine. In in the sense of what Liverpool did to them to, to, to cause them to wobble. And then Anfield became very respectful. The goals, as it became clear, there was going to be a lot of goals. There wasn't, um, there were no 
uh, cruel chanting. Uh, the goals weren't even celebrated too much until it got to nine. And then it just erupted because the Liverpool fans knew 10 would be a Premier League record and they shouted, we want 10. And it suddenly felt like a cup tie. So you, it was sort of privileged to be there to go through all the different phases of celebration and so on. Um, but at the heart of it, of course, you have a, have a team that we have to ask, will they, how will they recover from being humiliated? I mean, I gave a few players a two out of 10. I've, I've not done that for a very long time. Does we want 10 come into the cruel chanting? Would that be cruel? No, because as I've, as I've explained, Thomas Roddy, <laughs> as I've explained, it was very respectful up until that point. And then it was purely about history. It wasn't about rubbing the noses of Bournemouth in it. It was about, wow, we could be, everyone wants to be present for a historic moment. And as one, everybody realised they could they could be there for that. But I did make the we, point we in want my ten is, I'm, so, I'm sorry, we want 10 does not fit into the category of, well, just because there's a good reason for chanting it, it's okay. I mean, it's like being uh, one of the crowd when the gladiators were about to, you know, do away with someone and, and putting your thumb down, you know, and saying, yeah, we want blood. We want to see them dead, you know, drag no, them no, out, maybe no, decapitate them. You know, that I is what you're, that's what you're no. asking for. No, I was there. It didn't feel like that at all, Hugh. I can see how you might not understand that, but it was so respectful up until that point. It did not feel aimed at Bournemouth whatsoever. And everybody would have had huge respect for the travelling supporters because they 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 were great. They were great. They didn't boo. They were they were they shouted, you know, ole if if a pass reached another Bournemouth player. Uh, I think that happened twice. You know, it's like it was it was a proper proper respectful afternoon, and I could I could see why Klopp went to hug went to hug Parker because you know you sort of you end up thinking well you know you don't get extra points for winning nine nil there's almost no need for it really so you 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 could see how it was um, he didn't gloat at all but I do I do I do make the point what is it about ten that st- why why have we had a few teams scoring nine but not ten. Is that I wonder if there's a mental block that to reach double figures is to make a mockery of the Premier League being the best league in the world. It's almost as if that would be silly numbers. Does anyone agree that there might be a mental block on ten? It, it was nearly ten, wasn't it? It was nearly. Ah, 10 exactly. It should have been. It should have been. Mm. Could have easily been Listen, thirteen. If Mo Salah brought your shooting boots, it would have been thirteen. Ah, well, that's another point. That's another point. It was it was so easy that I think most Salah didn't have that kick of adrenaline you need as an elite player. It felt like a friendly or a kickabout for him, so he didn't have that sharpness. Honestly, the Bournemouth fans have all turned off already. This is entirely disrespectful, Alison Rudd. You know, Mo Salah, <laughs> one of the best players in the world. I, I look, maybe it's just that Mo's such a nice guy. He knew it was going to be nine. Didn't want to give that that record to the Bournemouth players. I don't, I don't know. He did lack something, but I think on a day. That that Liverpool score nine, you know, during the, the history books. We can't complain about any of their players, really. And that the mental block on 10, I, I can see what you're saying, because I think all the players know it's nine, don't they? Most players know it's nine. And nine is, it's almost like they've had enough here. Come on, guys, you know, let's just pass it around for the last few minutes. No need to really go at them too hard, you know. Nine, you've put yourself in the history books. Maybe once you, you know, once you hit seven, I think everyone's like, right, let's score nine. We'll be amongst elite company. And then it's like, 
okay, all right, you don't want to be those guys. You know, you don't want to be that person. <laughs> so I think maybe there was a little bit of kindness from the, the Liverpool players. Um, but we'll, we'll come back to that. There was a 9-0 in, in Scotland as well. So, you know, would it, uh, well, while we're on it, in fact, Alison, do you think there is a mental block? Is that why you think Liverpool didn't score 10? Why Celtic didn't score 10 against Dundee United? Well, I've no idea why why Celtic didn't score 10. I don't know what the history of score. I have a feeling there have been 10s in Scotland, to be honest. I'm talking about the Premier League and the fact that the minute you score double figures, maybe you undermine the word premier because it's this is that's the sort of score you get in comedy shows i point out that in in ripping yarns which you're both too young to know but you should you should seek it out it was a monty python spin-off and they did a football a football episode and there's a michael palin plays a guy called um gordon ottershaw whose team keep losing and he's this the scoreline that make, tips him over the edge and makes him wreck his house is eight bloody one. It's not 10 nil. It's almost like in fiction, you don't go for 10 nil because that means it's not real professional football. It's what you get in kiddies football or park football or pub football. 10 nil sounds like not a premium product. I think that's a deeply subconscious thing. What's interesting is we, it was, you know, that record where it began was was so long ago the Ipswich game, but yet we've seen a massive increase in the last few years on these these high scoring games. And if you if you last season, no, there were three teams that conceded more than seventy seven goals in the Premier League. If you go back twenty years ago, uh, no team conceded more than sixty four goals in the Premier League. And I just wonder whether there's a little bit of a a mix between or or even like the evolution that um perspective on managers needing to play nice attractive football even in those relegation positions is opening up is allowing for more goals to be conceded allowing them to be opened up more there isn't that kind of will um Will will happily sit back for ninety minutes and and fight for a nil nil. They they try and go for it from the first from the minute go. And there's that, and obviously the <laughs> the obvious combination of the the gap becoming even more of a gulf to big teams to the to the top teams now. Oh, that's a really interesting point, Tom, because that's like a dichotomy, isn't it? So, and and you're backing up what I'm saying in a sense because I'm saying it can't be a premier product if you have score lines that reach double figures, but you're saying it's also not going to be a premier product unless teams try and play attractive football, i.e. you can't be in the Premier League and just play hugely defensively 10 men behind the ball every game and hope to keep the score line to one or two nil. That's not acceptable either. So the outcome yeah. will be a few more big score lines. Yeah, I think I, I think the it's the perception of of managers and how they see themselves has has changed. There is a need to be more attractive, and if you're going to be in in the premier product of the Premier League and and uh, and progressing in that, because you know most managers are aspiring to be a top six manager. I need my team needs to play the same way they do there's no this kind of tony pulis you you just rarely see the tony pulis and neil warnock style anymore of trying to trying to snatch wins 
I think, Tom, there are a variety of reasons why, uh, including um, sports science, fitness and strength, so the players can play for longer um, at um, an accurate level, if you like. So they don't really drop off in the same way um, as they might have when they're all out on the beers um, in the mid to late 90s. Um, but I also think that, you know, at 3-0 back in the day, you might have taken players off, you know, and, and because they can't all get two-footed anymore and you can't, you know, the losing side can't start kicking players, you know, into the crowd, I think that gives the ability for the team that's on top to keep playing super beautiful football because they get the protection of referees. And that means that as we go into the second half, you know, there, there was no real difference between the fitness levels and the sharpness and the precision and the speed in the second half, at the start of the second half, as it was at the start of the first half. So, you know, there are a variety of factors, but I see where you're coming from. I felt for Bournemouth in this game. Um, I mentioned a little bit earlier on that their lack of transfer activity. You know, the, the question is now there about what they're doing as a club, whether we're going to see a team that is, um, I know they've won a game already this season, but is as poor as maybe the bottom two sides that we saw last season, to be perfectly honest. There's no point mentioning Derby County's 11 points because I think when you look at what Norwich did last season, we're talking, what, 22, 23 points last year. You know, it doesn't represent a great um, image for the Premier League if clubs are going to, if you like, come up and not really go for it in the fashion that we'd expect from from the sportsmanship, if you like. You know, you come to the Premier League, you know you're going to get 100 million I know there's the argument between do you want to be a Fulham or Nottingham Forest, spending loads of money, bringing loads of new players, maybe go straight back down anyway and it make no real difference or just consolidate as a club in the way that, that Norwich have done or maybe Bournemouth are doing at this point in time by not splurging, not spending the cash, but ultimately looking like it means you, you, your season is wasted and you'll definitely go down. It, it will be tough to take for the Bournemouth fans, but it does point towards you know a long old season. What do you think, Tom? The, the worry, I think, would be in the way that uh, Scott Parker is talking at the moment because it feels, um, and quite understandably because of the transfer business, it feels like there are excuses already. Um, and he, even after the Arsenal game, he was talking about the, the need to play in a different way and that his players aren't getting that yet that they played attractive football to get promoted from the Premier League and to survive in um, to get promoted to the Premier League and then to survive there you have to be a little bit more savvy a little bit more resilient um, and, and approach games in a different way but and, and even that was I think that was Marcos Sanessi's first game and you know it was a, it was one of those cliche welcome to the Premier Leagues when Gabriel Jesus um, absolutely barged him to the floor. and But the way in which Scott Parker is talking is like there are e excuses already. We've not done the business in the transfer window. And so there's already a tone that suggests they don't believe they can survive. Um, and we have seen that before with teams coming up. You know, the likes of Sheffield United, they, they weren't, they didn't do significant amounts in the transfer market and still and still survived and, and thrived in the Premier League. Yeah, there is there is an element of um self-fulfilling prophecy about the heavy defeat at Anfield because what Scott Parker said after the game about the club needs to make a decision 
I know no one's entirely sure what he means by a decision. I think it's it's probably just are they going to go for it or accept their fate is the decision. And that's not entirely in Scott Parker's hands if he can't boost the squad or if he feels that the general tone is one of let's just take the money and run, but not run very hard. But it's – and I can see why if you're the manager who's worked hard and got the club – to be promoted on a relative shoestring compared to the other teams that came up, you feel you deserve to be able to build the team as you want it to be built. So I can see why he's been making those noises publicly. But if you make those noises publicly, then you're not equipping the players to have any belief that they they can. They're they're being described variously as inexperienced or uh, not at it or not being equipped. If you're told that, then you're, I mean, that's exactly what they look like at Anfield. They look like a team that did not feel ready for this level, that they'd been promoted beyond their ability. And we all know underdogs can have their day and with the right um, shape and team talk and attitude, you, you can always get a result, always can. But you're not going to get one unless your confidence is boosted. So Scott Parker is treading a difficult path here. He He's trying to make, the board make decisions, but that has an impact on his team. And they, I mean, I do, I do get the sense it could all spiral nastily out of control if, if something doesn't give. And there aren't many days left in the transfer window for anything to give. And then what happens? It's, it's a very strange set of affairs, really. What does the impact of, if you're one of the players in the squad, what does the impact of hearing your manager essentially say, we need new players? He's, he's saying to you, you're not good enough. That's what you're hearing. And, and, but also, um, just to mention, despite all of this, there was, if anyone's not read it, Ali's excellent piece with Scott Parker on the, what was the name, Ali? You can explain it. Oh, Scott Parker allowed me to name it. So it was just very strange. So last December, Bournemouth scored a goal against Fulham from kickoff. It was four passes, shoot, goal. It was very, very highly detailed choreography. And, but... And it was copied by Real Madrid soon after. But then last weekend, it was copied a lot. It's just like everyone seemed to be copying it. And some some teams, PSG scored, you know, after a few seconds because they scored from kickoff using exactly the same choreography. Other clubs did it and put thank yous out on Twitter. It was like sort of the rage of, of the week. And Scott Parker very kindly agreed to talk to me about how he devised it, but he said, I could give it a name. I said, this needs a name. And uh, so I called it the AFCB four step because that's what it is, four passes and shoot. And they're very precise passes. And he did say in that interview, it was one, that was just one of hundreds of work, pieces of work he does on set pieces to try and gain an advantage, knowing that, you know, they don't have the best players. So they try and work out you know, marginal gains. He talks about marginal gains a lot, which is what you have to do if you're if if you're on the smaller clubs in the Premier League. So he he does not lack in terms of application. The impression I got from him is someone who just spends hours and hours studying ways to to try and close the gap when you're playing against teams that have spent millions and millions and have attracted the best players in the world to them and. You know, you won't find any football fan able to to name the Bournemouth starting eleven, even if 
you know, you'd argue what is the Bournemouth starting eleven. But do you see what do you see what I'm getting at? He is working hard at finding other routes. So he's got the minutiae right, but the big picture talk feels wrong. It feels defeatist and counterproductive. Well, I think he's going to need the other 99, to be perfectly honest with you, in terms of that meticulous planning. And, you know, no stone unturned might actually include having a look back at some of Tony Pulis's best wins, because in terms of closing the gap, 9-0, you know, a 1-0 defeat versus a 9-0 defeat, you know, you, you don't get any points out of the game. But when it comes to the end of the season and goal difference, you know, it might have a big, big effect. Um, but yeah, it was a very disappointing weekend for Bournemouth and Scott Parker. Just very quickly, Alison, Roberto Firmino, 100th goal in Liverpool colours. Um, you know, back through the middle, Diogo Jota injured, Darwin Nunez suspended. Um, you know, got himself back amongst the goals. Really important for him. What do you think? Can he help Liverpool get back to that level of, of competing for the Premier League title? Yeah, it was it was an important performance from him. He was at the heart of everything until he was taken off, um, because he'd been written off. If you listen to all the build up to this game, uh, it was how you know oh he's gonna Klopp's gonna have to use Bobby Firmino, and you know he's he's really past his best, and he's you know he's this is not how Liverpool want to play anymore. You know he's not very effective as a false number nine. He drops too deep. He doesn't get involved enough. He's lost his shooting boots. He's, a, you know, it's, he's a player who's not what he was. And okay, it was a weak Bournemouth, but the way he integrated with his teammates, the amount of ground he covered, uh, his positioning was fantastic. He was popping up all over the place, but not in a random, annoying way. In a, you know, intuitive, clever way. So, you know, I'm, I was just really pleased for him because I think the negativity surrounding him was not really deserved or appropriate and he's still very much part of the the team well two goals uh three assists in the game very important for Roberto Firmino very important for Liverpool um as I said a few seconds ago Tom what do you think are they, are they was it was it too quick to judge Liverpool in terms of the race for the Premier League title because I was one of those looking at their first few games thinking City are going to run away with this no no I don't think so because also uh I don't think Bournemouth are the best measure for um for how good a team actually is right now and also the the fact that the premier league is often <laughs> won at these early stages now makes a difference um it still felt even with that with that united game um that there are issues at liverpool and and also the fact that one of the main ones is the injuries. You can't, you know, you can't get away from that. So they, they do need those players back. Um, and a little bit, it's kind of um, similar to Arsenal in the way of that Bournemouth game, because quite understandably, people are getting excited about Arsenal and their potential this year. Um, and they have progressed massively from last season. But Let's see what happens in October when they're facing Tottenham, um, Liverpool and City. When when those big games are, are happening, the big teams are meeting each other, that's when we'll really see their kind of credentials. Good weekend for Liverpool. Manchester City, though, they're, they're, they're forging something, aren't they? Especially at the Etihad uh, Stadium. They came from two goals down for the second time this season. This time, though, it was a win. 
Erling Haaland helping them to a 4-2 victory at home to Crystal Palace with his first club hat-trick. And you know me, I'm a negative Nelly. So let's start with the fact that City have conceded five goals in their last two games. Is this defence going to be good enough when it really matters? Yes, that's where I'm starting on Manchester City. Alison Rudd. Well, it doesn't matter, does it? Because going forward, they are they are the best at the moment. And it's I I felt like this isn't a new thing this season. I felt like it's been like this for a couple of seasons with Pep Guardiola. They he gets a bit bored and it's only when they're behind that he starts showing some interest in the match anyway. Starts using, you know, making tactical tweaks and the players sort of get a bit excited and, and they go into their fifth gear. Um so no, I don't I don't I don't think their I don't think their defence is great. It seems a bit risky to put all the eggs in the players he's gone for. There's not much depth in defence, but but when you've got they're not but also they're not terrible, are they? They're not terrible. And they all they all understand the process. So when they decide they have to go and score a few goals or maybe more than a few goals, they'll do it. So yeah, it's and also, I don't know, Edison this season has looked a little bit slightly off it. I would have put Edison and Allison as like on a par, but I feel Allison's moved ahead somehow. There's something a bit lacklustre about Edison. But no, they are, they are going forward just when they want to be. They are unstoppable, absolutely unstoppable. And I'd, I'd be really interested in the... Um, in going behind the scenes. This will never happen, of course. I'd love to go behind the scenes to see how on a psychological dynamic as a defence, knowing that you will always be helped out by your attack, whether that means you are overly relaxed, perhaps, because they always say, you know, any result is built from the back. But I sort of feel with City, their results are built from the front. Happy with where City are? Me, personally, I'm not bothered where City are. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, but uh, the it, what's actually quite curious about your point Hugh and the last two games five goals conceded in the last two games and totally different games as well this wasn't the the two against Palace are um are quite uh, methodic um smart plays by Palace in the Newcastle game you've got these this kind of frenetic counter-attacks which City were always uh, were and are always going to be vulnerable to. Um, and I do think the loss of, you know, Fernandinho is is felt here a bit and will be felt this season, even with Rodri improving as he settles in. The arrival of Haaland just makes such a significant difference to them because of, as Ali said, he's, he's he just allows them to get out of these scrapes. I think without him, even, you know, I know he scored a hat-trick yesterday, um, on Saturday, but even without him there, I don't think they they win that game because they can just score so many different goals now. Um, there was a there was a way they and there was a way that City played and that we've got used to them playing that he's fit in beautifully, and I think that's kind of important to talk about as well because. He is living up to expectation. I remember um, Michael McIntyre, the comedian, talking about how you would start, when you start out as a comedian, 
you you're in these small shows and small tiny venues and no one knows really knows who you are and their expectations are so low and you're just um you're just impressing them if you if you can make them laugh you're impressing them then when you get to the size of being a, a stadium or arena comedian the 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 pressure is so high that it's actually a relief because you've got a bar of comedy that you've got to meet. And it's exactly the same with Harlem this season and, and players who arrive in the Premier League with such high expectation. And we saw, we've seen Romelu Lukaku fall short. We've seen so many players fall short that I do think it's, it's worth pointing out how good he's been already and settled in so quickly. Five games, six goals for Erling Haaland, got a hat-trick already. Um, I've decided this weekend that I don't like him. I don't like (laughs) him. I don't like him because who likes bullies? You know, no one likes a bully, number one. Number two, he styled himself like some sort of diehard baddie or someone that Jean-Claude Van Damme would fight as a kickboxer in the final scene of one of his action movies. He's the bad guy, okay? I don't care what anyone thinks until he cuts his hair at least, all right? So that's all I'm saying. The the, the way that he just dismissed the centre-backs like they weren't there was ridiculous. The speed as well. I mean, it is, it's like stopping a bison as he's running through on goal. I mean, you've got absolutely no chance, basically, or like a, 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 a stampeding rhino. Do you know what I mean? It was just, it was an irresistible force. And in that regard, I don't like him. I hope he doesn't turn into a flat trap bully. He's got so much talent. But the way he put away that third for the hat trick was you know, unbelievable. Knowing you're on a hat trick, knowing it's the goal that basically seals the game, you know, he just puts it away with such a plum. And it's just like at that goal, I was like, okay, this is it. New Premier League legend on the way. We'll be talking about him, you know, in 15 years' time, scoring the goals of a Kane or, you know, having the influence of a Drogba on his team, you know, and leading them to great things. And I imagine he he will. It's just been a great start for him. Um He's always in the right area. That's the thing. I mean, it was pointed out on Match of the Day that his movement in the first half wasn't wasn't great. But then his movement in the second half was like elite world-class goal scoring. It was, you know, for a player of his size as well, you know, to lose a player that big in basically the area of the six-yard box is something special, particularly when you got about six players back, but Crystal Palace somehow managed it. But I put that down to the talents of Haaland more than anything else. And it's ominous for the rest of the Premier League. If he can stay fit, we know he've had, he's had injury problems in the past, but if he stays fit, he's unbelievable. There is a glimmer of hope for the rest of the division in that he could just get very bored, couldn't he? I mean, he spent one, the first 45 minutes, he didn't, no one bothered passing to him. He wasn't involved. It must, it must get quite tiresome, be having knowing you just have to wait for your moment. So... If that happens a lot, where they they sort of ignore him for two thirds of a game, he might just switch off. No, no, no. We we are unfortunately, Alison, looking at someone who just lives for scoring goals. And that is the moment that he waits for. And as long as he gets that moment, you know, it's like a Pippo in Zaggy. You know, it's someone who just hovers around the pitch. The rest of the players do all the work until that decisive pass. And then he's there for the finish, you know, and that's all that matters to him. And you see on the celebration that that is what he's been waiting for all along. So as long as he gets that supply, he won't get bored. He absolutely will not get bored. But there is one more reason why I don't think we should like Erling Haaland. In his post-match interview, he called his manager Pep. 
Ah, I utterly heard that. Yes. disgraceful from <laughs> Erling Haaland. It should not be allowed. Okay. The gaffer, the boss, the manager. Okay. First name basis. You just showed up, mate. Unbelievable. <laughs> Absolutely unbelievable. And frankly, if you could give out a three match ban for that, then he should be getting one and missing the next few games. Okay? What do you think? What do you think Pep makes of that though? Let's all call him Pep just to wind, just to just to really rub it in. Because I wrote the, the, I remember writing a piece about Mikel Arteta actually when he arrived at Arsenal. He encouraged players to call him Mikel. And I felt that was a big mistake because of his age and the fact he played with one or two of them. You've got to create this distance. You have to be separate. You have to be slightly scary. You definitely have to be the authority figure. And you do not call the authority figure when it comes to football. You don't call your manager by his first name. That's it. So City players, City fans, make sure he's calling him the gaffer by next week, okay? He'll learn that phrase very, very quickly, I'm sure. Um, and he's learning things. He's picking up everything from the manager um, very quickly as well. Settled in nice, nicely. Another comeback victory for Manchester City, which, again, because of that defence, I think we'll see more of. And it will maybe build this air of uh, invincibility about them. We'll see how far they can go uh, in the Premier League this season. But yeah, they've started off very, very well. Liverpool and Manchester City covered. Uh, we'll be talking about Aston Villa showboating and pick our player of the month after this on the game. Steven Gerrard is already under big pressure this season. Three defeats in four games so far for Aston Villa. They were beaten 1-0 at home by West Ham this weekend. And they've got a big week ahead of them. Arsenal to come and Manchester City, the top two next. And really, I think he needs a recipe that works for him, Steven Gerrard. That is his job at the moment. He admitted uh, after the game that up until the final third, his team are pretty good, but they are yet to find that attacking fluidity. And that is really important. I've said before, I think they've got a pretty decent squad. And I did say before the start of the season, for me, it was going to be one of two ways. Their record is pretty poor, not just this season, but at the back end of last season. And you have to say Villa with high aspirations needs something soon. It might not necessarily be results, but we need to see something from the manager that says he's got a plan Maybe he just needs time. Alison, what do you think? What's going on at Aston Villa? Well, it seems to have been distilled um, into how he sets up and integrates his best players, who are Ings, Watkins and Coutinho, in terms of attacking. Uh, and the general view seems to be he can't play all three at the same time. I would argue that isn't necessarily true. I mean, we I could point to any number of clubs which integrates three very attack-minded players. It's because it's because of the old playing with two number nines, isn't it? And I I think we're getting I think everyone's maybe and maybe Gerard too is getting bogged down in in the the negative element of that, the risk attached to doing that when in fact you can surely get one of those number nines to do a different job. I mean, Ollie Watkins, for example, um, he is, is so good at doing what managers want him to do and he's quite tactically astute and he can be defensively very good. He can drop deeper. He can move wide. I, I, I don't, 
I don't, I, there must be a way of integrating those three players. And the trouble is the longer that becomes the dilemma, the more it has an impact on the rest of the squad so that when he decides to drop one of them, then you think, well, we're, we're not, what are we doing? What are, who are we? I thought we were going to be um, a quite interesting attack-minded team here, play expansive football, uh, and we're not. Why? What are we doing? So there is, there is, I think, almost a lack of identity, which if he, if Gerard was forceful about how he integrated those three, you would say, oh, they do have an identity. You can see what Gerard's trying to trying to achieve here. Whereas at the moment, it just feels like an experiment, and there is a cloud of doubt over it, which stops it being as effective as it could be. Um, I just, I'm, I'm, I am slightly concerned from Villa's point of view that the impact Coutinho made when he joined them, it's it, it's it's being rewritten as as it, he's now become a headache, and that's that is worrying i think because if you've got coutinho playing well and the way i love the way he he brings other you know he's a very unselfish player and he knits the team together and he he spots runs and he has some willing runners in that team so you'd want him there to knit it all together in an attacking sense and if you're saying you can't fit him in then what have you become you're when you're when the most beautiful football you've played has been because of a certain player and then suddenly that's become a weight around the neck of the team. It's it's almost going backwards at Villa. And I think that it needs Gerard to be less polite. I don't know. I just just go for it and decide how he's going to play. Yeah, and and also in a similar in a slight in a slightly similar way to, to Parker, I just find the the tone of Gerard after, especially after the West Ham game showing that he's a guy who is really feeling the pressure this season. Um, and that's absolutely... I wonder whether part of it is the fact that he's, he's lost Michael Beale, who was his trusty assistant and, you know, was with him at Rangers, was with him in that, that first from November last year when he got the job at Villa and has has long been seen as a real tactical genius who took over at QPR who have actually had a difficult start to the season but that doesn't that doesn't denigrate from him the role he would play as an assistant we've seen that before with guys like Rui Faria with Mourinho who was an excellent assistant coach but then can't make it on his own as a manager we saw it numerous times at at Man United as well with assistants uh, to Fergie who then went on to have uh, difficulties as managers in their own right. But the one thing I'd kind of say is Gerard heard the, a lot of booing um, and it's clear the fans are unhappy. And I, and I totally get that because you look at, you look at that team and you think exactly what Ali just said. Basically you, you look at that team and there is so much more potential there. That's not, that sometimes you think of one of the great coaches would be getting so much more out of them. Um, but on the even with the fans already showing um, they're upset with the way Villa are playing, actually, I think Gerard is going to get patience and quite a lot of patience because of the relationship he has with 
Christian Perslow, the chief exec of Villa, who has wanted him there for a long time since their relationship going back to the Liverpool days. He's wanted him there for a long time. So to give up early would would quite would surprise me. But as you said, Hugh, the, the ambitions of that club are huge. The, the finances there and the potential. Um, you know, we talk a lot about Newcastle and where they're going. I think Villa have similar expectations. Yeah, I, t- I tend to agree with you on that. I think they want to be in Europe. A consistent team in Europe would be the first first step for them. Um, whether Steven Gerrard was going to be the manager that would immediately deliver that or whether he was there to just, you know, maybe make them a regular top half team. I remember saying when he was appointed, such a great place for Steven Gerrard to go. I agree with you on the relationship with Christian Perz, though, because I felt he would get three seasons. Whatever happened, he would get three seasons. But you look at six wins in 22 in all competitions at the end of last season. If he loses to to Arsenal and Manchester City this week, it's five defeats in the first six at the start of this year. Um, You know, I I often now think of the Arsenal and Mikel Arteta situation as a real game changer in the thoughts of me, maybe a lot of fans as well about giving the manager time. You know, an inexperienced manager, Mikel Arteta, had had no managerial experience at least Steven Gerrard had done something special with Rangers a title winner semi-finalist in the European competition and because of that you almost think well, you got to give him some time you know he's shown elsewhere that he could be a very very good manager and although he signed some players the squad isn't entirely his this is his first summer transfer window um, and those players will need time to bed in he will need to, to learn what they're like as players and people around him um but you just wonder whether the aspirations will be too much for the owners. You know, they have spent money over the past few seasons. They do want things to go well at Aston Villa. And the big one is it's a decent squad. It's far above what we're seeing at the moment. And so you almost feel like, could there be another manager? And that question will linger that can get more out of them. Tom? It's interesting that you draw the comparison to Mikel Arteta, Hugh, because also um, Gerard's tried to stamp his authority on Villa in the same way that Arteta did in taking away the captaincy from Mings. And when Arteta did it with Aubameyang, they, that, that, was a, that was a strong move to make. You know, this is a goal scorer and you haven't got loads of them in your side. But he went on in those games that followed that to, to win. And Villa, Villa are struggling and Mings is a real popular figure in that dressing room. So you do, you do wonder the impact that decision has actually had and whether it might have backfired a little. Alison, do, do Villa need to amend their their aspirations at least for this season if they're going to stick by Gerard? Oh. <laughs> that's, that's a funny way of putting it. So Gerard will uh, uh, be allowed to stay if he reaches a target and the target is what? 20 points by Christmas. I mean, you know, is that that that's ridiculous. They have what they want first of all, I think, is to find I think they do want a dynasty there and they do want it to feel like this is long term and they're building something great. But what what they need, all they need is for it to look convincing. I don't think I I think there would be patience if they drop points now and again along the way maybe got a few unlucky draws, but everyone wants to see a trajectory. And what 
what we're seeing is that Gerard came in and his his fame and his aura as a excellent former player gave the team buoyancy and you felt oh you know once they all get to know each other and work out what they want you know we'll see a trajectory and we're not we're not we're seeing it going the wrong way and that him just existing him just being there isn't enough they need to it's worrying i think that it's going in the wrong direction it needs to be arrested soon i don't I, but i agree with tom completely is that they were so keen christian perslow was so keen to attract him it would it would be a major blow to him personally to have to say i made a mistake in appointing stephen gerrard so they're sort of they're sort of trapped i don't Maybe he just needs, like Tom's indicated, he just needs a superb number two to come in and reinvigorate his coaching style. But I think it's a bit odd to say you lower expectations in order to keep the manager in the job. That doesn't normally happen. Not in order to keep him in the job, but if you really believe in him and you know there are going to be ups and downs, don't you say, well, look, we all hoped for the best, but it's going to take longer than we thought it was. Steven Gerrard's our man. And that means we don't put as much pressure on being a top eight side this season. We say, look, okay, next season, that's going to be the aim. This year, it might be top 12, for example. I think, but at the moment, finishing ninth is looking like beyond them. They lost to Bournemouth, for goodness sake. This is not a team in great shape. The, the, the funny thing is as well is that they did um, they did attract an excellent number two because they got Neil Critchley to go from being a number one, a first choice manager at Blackpool, to come to be number two at Villa. Um, and I think he paid very well for that job. But And it, and it doesn't always, just because you are a, a great coach, it doesn't mean you're going to come in and have that natural fit. I mean, all the all the uh, everything you hear about João Sacramento, who was Mourinho's assistant at Spurs, before he went there, he was just the, the godsend in coaching circles and the up and coming figure. But his approach to players meant that it didn't work out, and the relationship with Mourinho eventually, after he went to Roma, eventually fell apart. So it's sometimes it's that you know whether Michael Beale and Gerard had this beautiful kind of blend that the likes of Pochettino and Jesus Perez had that maybe Critchley and, and Gerard don't. I'm not entirely sure, but it's it's a curious kind of factor. I'm going to talk about Tottenham Hotspur next. Not really going to examine their performance, though. They earned a 2-0 win over Nottingham Forest, continued their unbeaten start. For me, still not a title-challenging side yet. Nottingham Forest had 56% possession, 17 shots in the game. Shows you the effect that they had and, and could have this season, especially at home if they put in some more performances like that. Spurs, on the other hand, had 18 shots. And ultimately, their talisman, Harry Kane, the difference, already motoring pretty nicely this season as well. But we wanted to talk about Richarlison, who seems absolutely dead set on keeping, you know, his role in the Premier League as being almost the biggest thorn in the side to all opposing fans going for as long as possible. He revels in it. I've got to say, he absolutely revels in it. So his silky showboating at times uh, at the city ground, not really welcome by the fans or some of the opposing players who I think had to show him, you know, in response, uh, you've got to stop someone from showboating and you've got to do it in a strong fashion. That's all I'm going to say. You've got to send a message. 
Okay, and I'm I'm fully behind sending a message to anyone. Very good skills, by the way, Richarlison. But anyone showboating in that fashion. Okay, I'm fine. You know, you've got to have an enforcer. You've got to send a message. This is about respect. Alison Rudd, what do you think? Yeah, well, I mean, this brings us all the way back to Liverpool 9, Bournemouth 0. You didn't see any Liverpool players showboating when they could easily have done so. You just don't do it. And it would be I would have been fine with Richarlison doing some keepy-uppy if Spurs had been losing. You think, well, that's an interesting way of uh, <laughs> approaching life. But he does it because they're winning. And... And he feels he's made a considerable contribution to that result. And he wants people to look at him and he wants people to know how important he's been in that performance overall. So it's very selfish. It's very silly. And you can, you, if you're very good at keeping up, players tend to do it in the warm up or when they're, they're, they're warming up before they come on or there are moments you can do it as you walk onto the pitch, you can do it. You, in a game, during a game, when you're away from home, it's it's rude. Basically, it's rude. It's like turning up to a dinner party without any wine. Don't do it, please. I loved it. And I think Conte will love it because it kind of mirrors it just Richarlison as a whole, not just this moment, but Richarlison as a whole sort of mirrors what Conte is and what he wants to bring to a team and turn Tottenham into this. I, I, I'm really interested as to why you're laughing, you. <laughs> uh, I totally agree with you, which is why I'm right. laughing because I, you're oh. making a brilliant point. I totally agree with you. I just think Tottenham for so long have been this nice, friendly side who get the label of Spursy, which isn't about, isn't necessarily about being nice and friendly and, and lovely, but just a little bit weak. And it was it was it was funny that it happened at Forest. And it made me think that Richarlison, he's one of these guys who just thrives in those in those environments. And you could see watching the game how intense it was. Not not on the pitch, but just the the atmosphere that's created there. And he's the guy who is going to throw a flare into the crowd. And we're not condoning that. But he's, he's going to have these moments like the keepy-uppies, like the flare. Um, and it, it slightly reminds me of when Conte had Diego Costa at Chelsea in that kind of character who, who plays on the edge, likes to wind people up. And it's 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 probably not the best comparison to draw because of the fact Conte dumped Costa and with Richarlison he's bringing him in. But it's I just think he will his presence and the type of person he is just reflects what Conte wants Tottenham to become. He'll get his leg broken. This is what I was going to say. Okay, I don't mind anyone showboating. If you want to showboat, fine. All is fair in love and war. But when someone comes over and puts a reducer on you, I think's the term, <laughs> then uh, you just got to take it. You know, you wanted to you wanted to goad someone, and if they respond and if they react, that's fine. And I actually think the referees need to be lenient in that case. Okay, we all talk about a high bar for officials and all that. Well, if someone is showboating, taking the mick, a couple of goals up, not long to go in the game, and someone goes over and go straight through them, well, fine. I wouldn't even give a yellow card as far as I'm concerned because if someone wants to goad you on a football pitch, that is going to happen. And I don't care if it's Sunday League. I don't care if it's a Premier League. 
it's fine. Okay. And referees need to know that. In fact, that should be in their preseason directive. If someone showboats, you can do whatever you want to them. All right. As long as it's below the kneecap. Fine. Thank God it's thank God it's Howard Webb and not Hugh Woosencroft who's in going into the PGMO. <laughs> Listen, I'll do a better job, believe me, because this week I'm just I'm not even going to do it as a talking point. I'm just going to underline that we have a VAR crisis in this country. Add it to the multitude of crises currently ongoing. Okay, and in fact, footballers should strike soon. That's how bad. VAR is. This week's VAR crisis, which I imagine will be a feature every Monday, came at Chelsea, where despite Ruben Loftus-Cheek throwing himself to the ground in some sort of WWE-style, judo-style role, a penalty was given against Yuri Tielemans, who was just trying to nudge a little shoulder on Ruben Loftus-Cheek. Don't know where the violent reaction came from for Loftus-Cheek to throw himself to the ground. It was a forceful dive. That's how I describe it. And I immediately thought, well, there's no way VAR will allow this penalty to stand. And it did, okay? Believe me, they've got no idea what's going on at the moment in the in the, the PGMOL when it comes to reversing decisions, changing decisions, what's clear and obvious, what they should ask the referee to check. There's just no consistency there. And I was delighted to see the penalty chalked off due to an offside in the build-up. But believe me, had that penalty stood, it would have been a disgrace. There was absolutely no motion from Yuri Tielemans that would have led Ruben Loftus-Cheek, who's about a foot taller and about a stone heavier, to go to the ground like that. And I cannot believe the, the officials bought it. No talking point this week. I'm just going to bring that back, okay? Every Monday, this weekend's VAR crisis in the Premier League. And I'll be naming names next weekend, okay? PGMOL. So behave yourselves. Finally, though, on the game podcast, rant over. What, what, Alison? I said rant over. No, right, I, was just, go I, I, just, I was just going to say the game podcast is, is just, just, just the format for you to have some therapy, clearly. I thought that's why we exist. <laughs> We're cheaper than the. Do you think that was therapy? Do you think that makes me feel any better? I that think I have it to does. Come I think it does. Venting makes you feel better. It really doesn't. I just want to see a game. I want to see a weekend free of these ridiculous decisions. Setting a higher bar is unbelievable. You set a higher bar and then things are overturned with ease one weekend. It's like, hold on a minute. So it's a higher bar when the referee's out there blowing the whistle. But for VAR, there is clearly no higher bar. So that's all I'm saying. I don't get it. I don't get it. Why even say that you're going to, you know, decisions aren't going to be given as easily, blah, blah, blah. I don't get it. VAR, again, you're so bored of it. I'm bored of it. I've been saying it to you for how long? VAR light will not work. Either enforce the, the laws of the game as they're stated or don't. That's all I'm going to say, right? I'm moving on. Moving swiftly on to our, to our final item uh, of the game podcast. Each and every month on the game podcast, we're going to be choosing our player of the month, which could lead to some debate, some conjecture, or maybe we'll all be in agreement. Anyway, you will get the chance to decide the game podcast at player of the month once we put forward our nominations. And this week, we're going to be joined by Molly Hudson. Every week, you're going to get at least four players from whom you can uh, you can judge. So, Molly, hi, how are you? Might as well start with you. Welcome to the game podcast. Um, who have you gone for for player of the month? I think that I have been heavily influenced by this weekend, to be fair. Um, obviously watched um, Tottenham, Nottingham Forest yesterday and 
I think it's another one of those games where Nottingham Forest have lost, but I was really impressed with Dean Henderson. Obviously, yesterday he saved the penalty from Harry Kane. He's also saved one from Declan Rice. I think it was quite a bold move. Quite clearly, he he wasn't going to play at Manchester United, and obviously that's been you know quite publicly discussed. But I think it's always a bold move for a goalkeeper to to go to a team that's kind of won the relegation favourites, I suppose, because you know you're going to be very busy. And for a goalkeeper, that can work both ways. You know, it's a positive that you are probably going to make quite a lot of eye-catching saves. But at the same time, most weeks, you're probably going to concede it. You know, it's going to Nottingham Forest, you're not going to expect to get a lot of clean sheets in a season. So I think he's done really well. I think his, his overall play was pretty impressive against Spurs as well. And I think, you know, certainly watching that game yesterday... Forest are are a decent team, um, and I think of all the the players that they've brought in, if they are going to stay up, I think Henderson could be the one that makes the biggest impact because ultimately you can have as many goal scorers as you want, but if you're going to concede a lot of goals, then you're going to struggle. And I think you know Harry Kane said some nice things about him as well after after the game yesterday. And I think obviously with the World Cup on the horizon, that that battle for that kind of third goalkeeper, assuming that Jordan Pickford goes as number one and Aaron Ramsdale probably goes because obviously Arsenal are playing well again, whether it's Nick Pope or, or Dean Henderson. I think both have been sort of fantastic these early early weeks of the season. But for me, it's probably Dean Henderson just because of the expectations we probably have for Forrest and the amount of goals they'll concede. I think he's already sort of standing out to me as, as a real key player for them. Well, Dean Henderson, that is a strong nomination uh, to begin with. Uh, Tom Roddy, who have you gone for? We spent the whole of last season basically saying how Brighton um, were missing a striker, the guy to finish chances. And even though I still, even though I still think they're kind of missing that what they have never had a problem with doing is creating chances. And the guy who does that for them is Pascal Gross. And when you look at the, what, the, the influence that he has on games, it's quite, it's quite staggering for a, for a team like Brighton over Albion. They're only, since the beginning of last season, only James Ward-Prowse uh, has more played more passes into the box or created more chances from a team outside the traditional top six. And Graham Potter was talking this weekend about the fact they don't have a Salah or a Haaland, a player who stands out. But in in Pascal Gross, they they kind of do. And whether it's just a a case of him fitting into their their system beautifully, I'm not sure, but he's, he's reached the age of 31 now and he was playing. He's been there t- since 2017 at Ingolstadt. Before he's he's definitely not been the the star of of any team in particular until until now. And even even now, I think he's just an underrated player. Um, and the fact he is 31, I'm not quite sure we're going to see him be the next on this miraculous conveyor belt of 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 players who are making Brighton millions of pounds following Ben White and Mark Cucurella out of the club for a big money move. But this season, I think teams are going to have to basically concentrate on him to to stop Brighton. Alison Rudd, you obviously haven't gone for a Liverpool player. Who have you chosen? (laughs) No, I've gone for the sometimes sunny, sometimes sulky Serb, 
Alexander Mitrovic. He broke all the records in the championship, goal after goal after goal. No one has ever scored more than him. He did it with ease, with games to spare. He was just scoring for fun. And yet, still, everybody said he won't cut it in the Premier League. He'd been there before, not shone. And they just wrote him off. And lo and behold, he's proved everyone wrong by being... He's been himself. He's he's carried on where he left off. He's been absolutely a pain in the neck for defenders to deal with. He's very bullying, but remarkably, he's managed to always be on the right side of the bullying. So he's not getting penalised a lot by referees for being physical. That they're seeing that he does it most for the most part. It's you know it's within the rules, and he's just a nightmare for defenders. He scored four goals already in the Premier League. I mean, it's it's astonishing. It's not just the goals, his influence, the the impact he has in a game. He's, he was even humble enough to admit, even though he got cross Arsenal's winning goal at the weekend. Afterwards, he said, oh, I've looked at it again and it was fine. It was fine. I mean, how many strikers do that? I just think he's been everything the pundit said he couldn't be. And it's always lovely when that happens because he is... He is um, He's an, an excellent player for club and country, and he's he missed, he's missed a penalty already this season, and he he's, he's missed crucial ones for his country. But he comes back, he bounces back, he has great self belief. He's a great team player. I don't think Fulham would have a chance possibly of staying up without him. But him in this mood and the the intensity Fulham want to play with this time around, Fulham are not playing trying to play pretty football. They are they are being ugly when necessary. They're high intensity. That atmosphere really suits Mitrovic, and the fact that he just just all those critics now look foolish. I think he is definitely the player of the month. I'd have to disagree because I'm going for Gabriel <laughs> Jesus of Arsenal because I think he's had the biggest impact so far in terms of the new signings. I know we were talking about Haaland a little bit earlier on, and he's going to score a, a hatful of goals. But I think the final piece of the jigsaw to that Arsenal front line is Gabriel Jesus, tenacious footwork. He sniffs the ball out. He's just about around everything that they do well at the moment in terms of that forward line. They've had a perfect start to the season. He's brought that energy, that happiness um, to to his game, to the Emirates Stadium as well. Um, They're going to sell a hatful of G. Jesus shirts. I'm sure they will. But yeah, I just think he has been... Oh, maybe not the standout player. There's been a lot of good players so far, but the standout difference in a team compared to last season. Now, maybe that's unfair to a host of players, but I definitely feel like it has to be Gabriel Jesus. So he's my nomination. That is your nomination number four. Dean Henderson, we've got Alexander Mitrovic. Tom, you've gone for Pascal Gross, and I have gone uh, for Gabriel Jesus. All right, so those are your four nominations. Make sure you check them out. On the Times app, you can vote there. We'll also post it onto social media. You will make the decision for Player of the Month. We will discuss the results, as always. We will on the Game Podcast. And thank you guys for being such incredible company for the past hour. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, Molly Hudson, uh, Tom Roddy, Alison Rudd, and to you for listening. Remember, you can subscribe to the podcast right now, so make sure you do wherever you're listening to your podcast. Check out the Times app as well, thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. 